Hello and welcome to South Asia Chat. I'm your host, Dr. Imran Ahmed, visiting research fellow here at ISAS. The incredibly tense political situation in Pakistan recently came to a head with an assassination attempt on Imran Khan, the former prime minister who was ousted out of office earlier this year through a vote of no confidence. Khan was wounded by gunfire during his campaign to lead a procession from Lahore to the capital Islamabad to force the government into calling early elections. To help us make sense of these recent political developments is Director of ISAS and Associate Professor Dr. Iqbal Singh Sevier. Dr. Iqbal, welcome. It's always a pleasure to join you, Imran. Despite losing favor of the security establishment in Pakistan, Imran Khan seems to command tremendous power and pull on the streets, attested through the rallies and demonstrations he has led since his fall from Pakistan's highest political office. His party's performance in recent by-elections also appears to confirm that his support translates into votes. How do you explain what looks like Imran Khan's growing appeal across the country? What is his message? Well, Imran Khan's message is quite simple, actually, and I think it's the simplicity of it yes. that, that appeals to a number of his supporters. And his message, in a nutshell, is that all established politicians are corrupt, and he is the solution to this corrupt structure. Now, if you pay attention to his political rhetoric, you will find him describing politicians as chores, um, robbers, um, thieves, and as corrupt individuals, etc. Now, this message in itself is, is not new, and that's one of the reasons why it, it resonates with the public as well. Um, and if we actually pay attention to this, we find that in many ways, Imran Khan is actually replicating a message that has often been enunciated by the military leadership in, in Pakistan. Yes. I mean, if we, we go back to the first military coup that happened in Pakistan under the military leader Ayub Khan, Ayub Khan essentially said that uh, the problem in Pakistan was corrupt politicians. And if you could get rid of the corrupt politicians, you'll have a proper governing structure. And that has been repeated by various military leaders as well. So in that sense, Imran Khan is plugging into this message itself. And I, I, I deliberately bring up that uh, analogy of comparing him to the military leadership in a way because he's not only accusing other established politicians of being corrupt, but he's also portraying himself as a strong man figure mm -hmm. who, who is like a savior figure. Now, if we dive a little deeper into the, the appeal of this messaging itself, what you find is that um, obviously it, it appeals to people who are struggling under um, soaring inflation. Um, food inflation is, is, um, is something that uh, people in Pakistan are struggling with. Um, but also, and I would particularly draw attention here to Imran Khan's appeal among a new um, electoral group, if, if one may describe them as such, the urban young middle class. Um, or lower middle class as well. And these are groups of, uh, of young voters who are not necessarily wedded to any particular established political party and are perhaps not even wedded to the social, political, and economic structures on which these parties have based their support traditionally. And 
they are particularly drawn towards this charismatic figure who portrays himself as a saviour fighting against corruption. So, so that's one of his big selling points, yes. per se, of his, his messaging. And this is very intelligently played out. Um, and of course, there are parallels between um, himself as the uh, World Cup winning cricket captain and parallels are drawn between how, just like he led Pakistan to win in the World Cup, he can actually lead Pakistan in the political arena as well. And I, I suspect we may be discussing his performance in the political arena shortly as well. <laughs> but there's also another aspect to it, if you look in terms of positive messaging as well. Um, Imran Khan's political agenda promises a populist message. Yes. Um, and again, this appeals to um, certain sections who are struggling with the economic problems that the Pakistanis are confronted with. If you look at this populist message, if you break it down, you find that it promises cheap electricity, uh, cheap houses, uh, promises of creating thousands upon thousands of jobs. But it also, at the same time, uses Islamic rhetoric as well. So religion comes in as a legitimizing factor for Imran Khan as well. So this entire populist model is packaged as building of the new Medina. Mm. Um, and he looks back to the Medinan state. Reference here is to the uh, polity established by Prophet Muhammad um, um, in his lifetime. And if I was to sum up what, what I've been trying to articulate so far is that he merges the the um, discourse of anti-corruption with promises of populist policies and a populist agenda mixed with an authoritarian sort of a um, packaging, packaging yes. of a strong man. But he also brings in elements of religious conservatism. So um, I think this is something that often gets overlooked in the discourse as well, that he's... He's made it very clear that he's not going to go against um, the blasphemy law, for instance. He's also made statements that appeal to the socially conservative factions. So that, in a nutshell, is the way he packages it. And um, in terms of the support base, as I mentioned, is the, um, the youth uh, um, are particularly galvanized by this, this appeal. But it's also, there's also a broader disillusionment with politicians in, in Pakistan, which he's tapping into. I see. I, I, I think also it, what's interesting is um, he really portrays himself as an outsider. Mm. That uh, in, in some of his interviews, he, he reoccurringly says, you know, I, you know, what draws people to politics? Mm. For me, he says, I already have fame. Mm. I already have wealth. I already have status. Uh, I'm here to do good. Um, so I think in that way he really taps into the narrative, the populist narratives that you mentioned that we see uh, that Donald Trump would say mm. that I, you know I'm an outsider, I'm here to make mm -mm. make this better. Mm -mm. But he also seems like a deeply uh, polarizing figure. The anti-corruption narrative: um, everybody's corrupt except for me. Uh, I'm I'm good. It's good versus mm -hmm. evil. Um, so that that's kind of narrative is very interesting to see, and that also plays into the populist mm. um, developments around the world. Mm -hmm. um, and if if I may add to that, actually, um, you, you're you're spot on. He portrays himself as the outsider. Um, I guess one does have to ask: that How long do you need to be in politics to to be to an, be an insider? insider. <laughs> <laughs> but the the other thing that um, that he also um, and and justifiably can 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 uh, point towards is that after he he pretty much um, retired from cricket, he has actually spent um, a lot of his own resources and efforts in building 
cancer hospital. Yes. Um, you know, creating awareness about cancer. He's also supported a number of educational institutions. So that that must also be highlighted here that not only is he an out seen as an outsider, but he's actually seen as someone who's actually done something for society. Right. And for his supporters that's an important point as well. Yes. So to the next question. The current coalition government under the banner of the Pakistan Democratic Movement, led by Prime Minister Shahbaz Sharif, has been in office since April and has been tasked to manage difficult challenges including Pakistan's weak economy, troubled relations with foreign powers, as well as disaster management following the devastating floods. How would you evaluate the Sharif government's performance in these anxious times? To answer that question, I should perhaps start by highlighting highlighting that there are structural issues um, that um, the Shabash Sharif government has inherited um, from from the Imran Khan government. But in there are also structural issues that the Imran Khan government inherited from previous governments as well. And here I'm alluding to the fact that um, that successive governments in Pakistan have not been able to deal with some of the underlining structural problems that uh, that Pakistan is, is, is facing. And by this, I specifically uh, am referring to the foreign debt issue, um, the, the lack of uh, generation of revenue within Pakistan itself, which is, uh, which is something that the IMF has demanded. Um, and... The third and perhaps one of the most um, controversial issues at the moment is the heavy reliance on foreign loans to, to pluck the gap, I see. Um, yeah. um, in, in a sense. And these are issues that the Shabash Sharif government, since coming to power, has um, not been able to address. In fact, they've, they've, they've continued to rely on foreign loans. I mean, in August, Pakistan could have defaulted. Um, but he relied on an IMF loan to plug the gap. And um, if we look at um, recent um, recent economic initiatives, uh, the, the things that we can point to, uh, apart from statements, um, and there are very nice statements that are being made, but in terms of policy implementation, um, the, the only real things we see uh, having been done under the Shabash Sharif-led government is um, more loans. So, um, if you you you, you mentioned uh, China and Saudi Arabia, um, you know the, he's secured something worth thirteen billion dollars worth U.S. dollars worth of loans from from these two countries. Now, these these include uh, currency swaps, uh, sovereign sovereign loans, and bank loans as well. So it's a mixed thing, but it comes out to about thirteen billion. So it's more of the same in that more sense. More the same. And this is only going to accentuate the structural problems that, that the country needs to grapple with. Um, and so I don't see any solutions being uh, brought forward in that sense. The, the thing that we have noticed in the past week since uh, Shabash Sharif's um, visit to China, which is important in itself, a reassertion of its, um, its um, friendship uh, with, with China, um, is, a, is a concerted... Um, a statement that there will be a concerted effort to hasten CPAC projects or the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor projects. Um, one example of this is a commitment to to accelerate the pace of building mainline one, a fast-paced train from uh, Peshawar to, to Karachi. 
etc. So a lot of um, CPEC projects, it is being said, are going to be accelerated. They're going to be taken up. Now, this indicates that um, looking ahead, the Shabazz Sharif uh, government is not only going to, I mean, of course, as the state obvious, is going to emphasize its uh, reliance on CPEC projects, but it's also going to focus or indicates that it's going to focus on infrastructural projects. Um, I'm not sure if this is the the the, the way to go at yes. the moment, given the problems that Pakistan is facing. Um, so, in a sense, I don't see I don't see them grappling with the structural issues, but they have had to repair some of the um, some of the um, relationships. Um, CPAC, there were some issues under Imran Khan as well, which um, clearly Shabash Sharif is keen to to remedy. The um, could we say the rapprochement with uh, with the US mm-hmm. um, is another uh, important thing. General Bajwa, the military chief, um, visited the US. Um, the US seems to be indicating that it's um, it's um, it's willing to repair its relationship with uh, with Pakistan. That that was called into question with um, uh, Imran Khan's accusations of a conspiracy, US-led conspiracy to topple his government as well. So we see that happening. Um, and just to come to the last point that you mentioned, you mentioned the devastating floods that, yes. that uh, affected uh, Pakistan in September. Now this actually creates another, uh, on, the, on the one hand, it, um, we, we, have to, we, have to, we have to recognize that the Shabazz Sharif government has not been Adequately has not adequately been able to deal with this this flooding crisis. I'm not sure how the infrastructural emphasis is going to help with the social with, distress. With the social distress, yes, and the real economic distress that that 23 million people uh, are said to have suffered from these floods, and the floods are still affecting Pakistan, by the way. Um, but there's another issue here, and this relates to the agricultural economy uh, of Pakistan. So a lot of uh, food-producing areas were affected by the floods. So naturally, given the Ukraine war and the war in Ukraine um, and the, the shortage of food production, um, the shortage of food imports, the wheat issue, mm-hmm. these floods are going to accentuate that. And there's also another thing I'd just like to highlight before, before closing is that a number of cotton-producing areas were affected by the floods as well. And that affects Pakistan's textile economy because Pakistan's textile economy, 70% of the cotton that's used is produced in Pakistan. So these floods have, uh, are not only adequately being dealt with, but they've contribu- they're going to contribute to the economic problems that the Shabazz Sharif government is going to have to grapple with. Okay. I, I would just add one more mm. thing. Um, one of the things that I noticed, um, at least uh, during the period in which you know, the the Pakistan democratic movement was really active, was that critics always said that, um, many critics said that the movement lacks vision. It's anti-Imran Khan, you know, it's it's very, um, its main slogans were about, you know, restoring democracy because Imran Khan was the prime minister selected, mm. not elected. But beyond that, it seems like the return to uh, Purana Pakistan mm. seems to be struggling with the same issues mm. as the as Imran Khan's mm. Naya Pakistan. Mm. The old, the old and the new seem to it, it, it seems difficult to differentiate between mm. the two. So my next questions on the uh, military. The army in Pakistan is a powerful political force. 
an altar often noted as the kingmaker in the country, but recently it has repeatedly stressed its neutrality in the political conflict between Khan's Pakistan Tehrik-e-Insaf party and the Sharif government. What does this neutrality mean for Khan and the Sharif government? And how did we get to a place where the ISI chief now defends the army's public image in a press conference? What I'm really asking, I suppose, is has the establishment's powers diminished? Yeah, um, predictions about the establishment's powers in uh, <laughs> Pakistan have, uh, have been made and have been proven to be wrong <laughs> before. So, so I'll think twice before I'm predicting that. Sounds wise. Neutrality. This is an interesting term that's uh, become a catchphrase in, in the political discourse at the moment. The term neutrality um, that's used by the army at the moment in Pakistan um, specifically refers to the, um, the context in which Imran Khan lost the no-confidence vote in Pakistan in April. Yes. Um, and um, it should be noted here that right? Imran Khan is the first, politi first political leader or prime minister to actually have lost a no-confidence vote in, in Pakistan. Um, one of the reasons for that is that Imran Khan was also the only, you know, when he assumed power, it was only the second time in Pakistan that a democratic government had handed reins to another democratically elected government um, through a democratic process. And the reference here is the fact that the establishment, the security establishment, has always intervened in the process. So, so the term neutrality is a very loaded term. Um, and in the specific context of Imran Khan losing the no-confidence vote, neutrality refer the military's neutrality refers to the fact that it did not back him. Yes. Right? Now, as, as you, you, you mentioned earlier, you know, Imran Khan has long been described as the selected candidate. You know? um, and there have long been uh, reports about the, the military's support for, uh, for him uh, to, to counter the other political parties, etc., and, and support for him in the elections that he actually won and became the, the prime minister, etc. So in this case, neutrality is the fact that they did not back him. Um, and they allowed the no-confidence vote to, to occur. So in a very specific sense with regards to the fall of Imran Khan, neutrality refers to the lack of backing for their previously preferred candidate. But there's another way we, we should uh, also understand the term neutrality. Um, under Imran Khan, there was an experiment um, by the chief of army staff, uh, or led by the chief of army staff, General uh, Kamar Bajwa, um, to, to develop what has been described as the hybrid regime model, in which Imran Khan's government acknowledged repeatedly that they were on the same page with the military. Now, previously, the military, as I mentioned earlier, has, has played a major role in the political process. But this time around, we saw a legitimization from the leader himself in a way that we had not really seen before. And there were repeated uh, public uh, meetings where both attended, they were both photographed together, statements were made together, and the repeated assertion that they are on the same page, etc., gave rise to this hybrid regime model. Um, and it's important to note here that not everybody in the military is on board with the hybrid regime model because the problem with the hybrid regime model is that one gets associated with the good things the government does, 
but the military also gets associated associated with the failings of the government. And in this case, there are a number of voices within the military that have been concerned that they have been associated with the inability of Imran Khan's government to deal with the economic problems of the day, but also the conspiracy theories that, that emerged, etc., have damaged the, the military's reputation, etc. So in this sense, the assertion of neutrality is also, in my reading, a statement by the the military that we're stepping away from the hybrid regime model in the subsequent uh, stages of political development in Pakistan. Um, so that's how I read I read it in two ways in in this sense. And with regards to the the almost unprecedented situation in which the ISI chief Nadim Najum and um, the inter-services public relations uh, in charge um, Babar Iftikhar, uh, Lieutenant General Babar Iftikhar actually addressed the press conference to reject um, Imran Khan's statements. Now, that, that was something that got a lot of attention. Um, my own reading is that Imran Khan and his PTI party are aware that the, the, the military is not a homogeneous um, institution. There are different opinions within it. And they have made, they have made attempts to, to bring out the rifts within the military itself, right? And and usually the military rifts don't play out in the public domain, but we do know that there are different opinions, etc. Um, and so in my reading, the, the press conference um, where the ISI chief or the spy agency chief and the, um, basically the public relations personnel of the, the military appeared together had two aims. One, to reject um, Imran Khan's conspiracy theories. Um, blaming the military for trying to bring down his government, but also being part of a foreign-led conspiracy to, to topple democratic governments in, in Pakistan. So on one hand, to reject those conspiracies directly, but on the other hand, to also portray, seek to portray a single voice of the security establishment, that we're all united, and this is the final word on this issue. And perhaps also to draw a red line for Imran Khan to say that this is where you have to stop, or not you'll be pushing the boundaries too far. His, so speech, his speech has definitely became a little bit milder <laughs> shortly after, after that. Well, he, he was, um, he, he's acknowledged that there were back-channel negotiations that were going on with the military. So, so you have to bear that in mind as well, that you know, he was trying to reach out as well. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. I think uh, that was such an interesting... Um, there was so much there. I think the complex semantics of the of the word neutrality, uh, its narrow understanding, but also in the new ways in which it describes what's been happening with the hybrid regime, the experiment with that. Um, I thought that was very interesting. Thank you. Uh, so I, I wanted to ask one more question on the army. So the the next army chief is uh, the appointment of the next army chief is due to take place this month. Uh, but it's been the subject of a lot of debate and speculation, with Imran Khan even pushing the government to be involved in the process. Why is the struggle to appoint the next army chief such a source of controversy? How much of a say do you think politicians have over the appointment in the first place? Well, this, this sort of uh, feeds on your previous question about yes. what would the role of the, the establishment be yes, in, in exactly. the future, right? And I think that's, that's one of the concerns here. Um, um, will the next military chief um, 
assert um, more of a direct role in politics? Will the next chief kind of replicate the hybrid regime model or would the next chief actually step away from direct involvement in the political arena? Now, firstly, let's, let's, be, let's be very uh, frank about it. To expect that the military is going to go back in the barracks and not have any political role in Pakistan is, uh, is not a realistic um, idea. Um, history has shown us that. Um, but my own take is that, you know, again, building on the, the, the idea of the neutrality issue is that the military itself recognizes it does not have any easy allies this time around. While Imran Khan is, um, is at loggerheads with the military now, um, Shabazz Sharif's party has been at loggerheads with the military. Historically, Historically. Yes. Um, they've both received patronage from the military and um, been thrown out of power by the military as well. Um, the PPP itself has received patronage from the military and been thrown out by the military as well. Benazir Bhutto's assassination, uh, many PPP uh, members actually feel that the military was involved in it, you know, and so that, that conspiracy theory goes on as well. And the... Um uh, execution of Ex Zulfikar Ali Bhutto. Precisely, precisely. So, you know, <laughs> there are no easy allies for the military this time around, um, which makes the choice of the next um, leader, all next military chief, all the more um, important, perhaps controversial as well. Now, coming to the, the um, process of it, as you asked, now there is the, there's the technical um, description of the process, where it is the the president will the president of Pakistan will appoint the next military chief. The prime minister advises the uh, president to do it, um, and the military chief, the incumbent military chief, has a role in advising the prime minister. But technically, it's the call of the president. Now that's how it's technically done. But uh, history has shown that the the military establishment has a major say in entire this this entire process. Um, and actually, we can just look back at uh, the Imran Khan's own uh, period in, in government. Um, the current uh, military chief, General Bajwa, was extended um, beyond what was generally um, seen to be the range. And in fact, the, the law had to be changed by for the Imran Khan happen. government for that, to, for that to happen. So that just shows the influence that the military chiefs have on the entire process itself. Um, so... What we will see is that, what we know is that there are four to five candidates whose names, uh, and they're, they're no secret, they're, they're, you have to have certain credentials to be able to, to get this position. And there are four or five names that, that are in the public domain. Um, there will be a military consensus that will form around this, and then that will be um, enunciated or presented to the, to the Prime Minister, who will then officially push it on. Now... Where it gets really tricky this time around is Imran Khan wants a say in this process. Yes. And, you know, and um, he's presented um, uh, a list. Uh, he actually, he, he presented a proposal to Sabah Sharif that um, the Sabah Sharif and Imran Khan should sit together and come up with a few names and, and there should be a consensus candidate, etc. Now, there's never been a president of the opposition uh, being involved, being involved in, in this, so so this is a this is a unique sort of thing which has been rejected already. But perhaps I I, I should also highlight here that um, the first friction 
the first public friction that occurred between the military and Imran Khan happened over the um, the decision by the army chief to actually transfer the head of ISI, who also comes under the under the army chief in, in de facto wise, mm. um, and that was a Faiz Hamid, who was the ISI chief, and Imran Khan um, delayed that transfer process. Um, not rejected, but delayed the transfer project, retained Fez and Hamid for as long as he could. Now, that was often seen as um, Imran Khan's uh, um, attempt to limit the power of the military. I would say that perhaps it was also an indication of Imran Khan's desire to keep Fez Hamid as the ISI chief, but also perhaps to promote him as the military chief. Um, and Faiz Hamid, of course, has been associated with uh, supporting Imran Khan's uh, rise to power as well. So there's, there's layers upon layers in, the, in this story in that sense. Thank you so much. Uh, so finally, the next few months is critical for, critical for Pakistan's political development. Uh, as you detail uh, the appointment of the new army chief, there might also be possible elections looming in the horizon. What should we be looking out for? Um, the first thing that we should look out for is um, when will the elections take place? Um, post the assassination attempt on Imran Khan, his supporters have been galvanized. Um, the, it is very clear that the Shabazz Sharif-led government, and I should say led government because it's a coalition government, um, will not be interested in going for early elections. I would also add there's another level of ambiguity. Um, would Imran Khan's PTI party actually push for early elections? Now, they, they are involved in mass street protests, etc. But they've been a bit ambiguous about early elections because it's important to note that if the PTI really wants early elections, they can trigger early elections by dissolving the Punjab Assembly, which they control, and dissolving the Khyber uh, Pakhtunkhwa um, assembly, which they also control. So they can trigger early elections immediately, but they've refrained from doing that. Now, with a galvanized and angry support base that's taken to the streets for mass protests, I'm, I'll be looking out to see how much the street influences the PTI's decision. Would, they be, would the PTI and Imran Khan be forced to play their hand mm. before, before they would like to? So that's one thing I'll be looking out for, when these elections actually uh, take, are called, place. take place or yeah. are called for. Um, the other thing I would be keeping an eye out for is, uh, and I mentioned earlier, that there have been uh, back-channel negotiations between Imran Khan and some sections of, of the military. Um, and I'm going, um, there have been rumors about this for, for some time. Um, and anybody who studies Pakistani politics knows that this back-channel is always... Happened. takes place, yes. But Imran Khan has himself confirmed that there was some level of this going on. I'll be interested to see if, post the assassination attempt, I should say, um, if there's a toning down of the rhetoric to get back in, to not cross that trade boundaries, to ensure that these back-channel negotiations continue, or are we in a situation where it's um, full-on taking on the military now? That So I'll be keeping an eye on, on seeing... What, what happens here. Um, the, the third thing I'll be keeping an eye out on uh, also uh, is also the who will be the next military chief because this has to be decided by the end of this month. 
Um, General Bajwa is due to retire on the 29th of November. And um, repeatedly he's been asserted that he's stepping down. So the next military chief will also bring a new understanding to how he, and I say he because the, oh, the, the five names, they're all, all male, um, the, what sort of understanding or approach towards the political sphere is going to be implemented by this person's vision. So I'll be keeping an eye out on that as well. And lastly, an issue that I'll be very interested in keeping, out, uh, keeping an eye out is Imran Khan himself, ironically one could say, or maybe it's part of the political conspiracy itself, has been disqualified um, because the Election Commission of Pakistan, uh, as you know, has, uh, has barred him um, from holding a seat in parliament because they have found him to have misappropriated state gifts. Now, this is a process that will be fought out in the judiciary. Mm. And um, the judiciary in Pakistan in the past year has indicated that it is willing to take hard decisions and controversial decisions in the relating to the political process itself. So I'll be keeping an eye out on this legal battle to see how the judiciary positions itself vis-a-vis -vis the security establishment and the political players. But also if Imran Khan will actually be able to stand in the next elections as well. And so these are the things I'll be keeping an eye out on. Interesting times ahead. <laughs> Interesting <laughs> times indeed. Yes. Thank you so much, Professor Iqbal. You're listening to South Asia Chat. To find out more about our work, please visit isas.nus.edu.sg.